3: a production of the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. Before we begin, I want to give a special shout out to my team. Thank you, Sim, Tiffany, Sam, and the team over at Good Juju Studios, Erica England, Pepper Chambers, the hot one, and my social media team. Today on Hello Somebody, I have the world-renowned professor, intellectual, himself, Dr. Eddie S. Glaw, Jr., and he is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor and the Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. He is the former president of the American Academy of Religion, the largest professional organization of scholars of religion in the world. Glaude is the author of several important books, including Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, which has been described as, quote, one of the most imaginative, daring books of the 20th century, end quote. And his most recent book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own, was released on June 30, of 2020. Imani Perry describes the book as, quote, precisely the witness we need for our most treacherous times, end quote. Dr. Glaude is also a columnist for Time Magazine and a regular contributor on MSNBC. He hails from Moss Point, Mississippi, a small town on the golf course, and is a graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. I got two world-renowned academics, Doc, because they gonna say, "Wait a minute, ain't that the way you introduced Dr. Cornell West?" <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I'm a student. Yeah. Yes, I was gonna get that I'm in there. Yes, yeah, Dr. Eddie yeah.
3: Glaude is a student. See, I, I the intergalactical intellectual himself, Dr. Cornell West, <laughs> and I got the world-renowned intellectual, Dr. Eddie Glaude. Dr. Glaude, welcome to Hello Somebody.
4: It's a pleasure to be with you.
3: So glad you are here. Congresswoman
4: Nina Turner.
3: <laughs> you better say it. That sounds <laughs> <We're> gonna, good. I'm
4: going to speak that into speak reality. Speak
3: it into existence. We come from a faith that said, call those things that are not as mm-hmm. though they were. So where to start? It's so much going on right now. Tell me, you know what? I'm not even going to start my usual way. What's on your mind today, Dr. Glow? I want to talk to you about your books and I need to go get my James Baldwin book, but I got to get you to sign that book for me. But what's on your mind at this moment?
4: Well, you know, to be honest with you, it's been a, a day of of uh, complex emotions. You know, you get the Supreme Court basically gutting the Voting Rights Act, as Justice Kagan said, you know, an example of uh, judicial overreach, basically knocking the knees out from under the Section 2 of, of the Voting Rights Act and the like. And it's just a reminder that this country is forever grappling with its refusal to imagine itself as anything other than a white nation. Yeah. And I was thinking, we often read the court in light of the Warren court, mm-hmm. which gave us Brown v. Board of Education, which gave us uh, those decisions that were so important to laying the foundation for the collapse of Jim Crow and, and, and the like. But for the most part, the history of the court has been in some ways to sanction by law white supremacy. And so today has been a day where I've just kind of been grappling with the country's history and trying to figure out how we're going to respond to it all. Uh, Because we're living in, we're experiencing in real time, Sister Nina, uh, the reassertion of the lie. That's what we're experiencing in real time and we have those among us who are complicit that makes it all very dangerous to me. So that's where I am today. So after this I'm going I'm going to pour me a nice <laughs> bourbon or something. You know, me. I typically I typically drink Irish whiskey, but it's going to be it's something a else. It's bourbon
3: day. Mm. Oh my god. I mean, two things are coming to mind. And what the Supreme Court of the United States of America has just done, and then what it did in Shelby if Shelby v Holder wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's what came to mind. Shelby B. Holder listening to you just now.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they basically just just gutted the voting rights. act. I mean, it's it's done. And then you combine that with what we're seeing across 48 states, close to 400 pieces of legislation. They're trying to rig the election. They're trying to, in some ways, narrow. Not in some ways. They're trying to uh, pick and choose their voters. They're doing that by narrowing the electorate. And I keep telling people that there's a through line from January 6th to the spate of voting rights laws, to the violence against uh, Asian Americans, to uh, the question of immigration law. And the through line is this absolute terror and panic about the demographic shifts of the country.
3: It's a backlash.
4: Oh, it's a betrayal. Yeah. More than a, you know, it c- cuts even deeper.
3: Yeah. So, Shelby v. Holder, the Supreme Court challenged. In my mind, the United States Congress Mm -hmm. to do something about it. And we find ourselves with two very important bills pending in the United States Congress as of our interview with one another. Mm -hmm. The For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, both of which have passed the United States House of Representatives. But is they are both languishing, lingering, being held up. In the United States Senate. So what does that say, Doc, especially from Shelby to this moment? We finally have two pieces of legislation that could answer Shelby. Mm-hmm. It took that long, but we we're here now. And then you have a Senate where well, you have an entire Congress, the House and the Senate controlled by Democrats. But these two pieces of legislation are held up in the Senate. And right. then you have a Supreme Court. That just doubled down on Shelby. Mm-hmm. Doc, it makes me, I mean, I just want to run out of the room screaming.
4: Well, you're not alone. We all want to run out of this thing screaming. But, you know, we have to, we have to stand tall and fight. And I think part of what we have to do is also offer uh, an accurate description. Yes. So oftentimes we tell the story of our current troubles, of the current malaise of the country, as if it's only the Republican Party. You see, mansion and cinema are providing cover for folks. They're not the only ones who are against, you know, the For the People Act. Yes. There are politicians who are on the Democratic side of the aisle who are perfectly content with the current voting system. I was just recently on a show on MSNBC that I'm often on early in the morning. And Matthew Iglesias was talking about a study saying that progressives actually benefit from low turnout. And he was trying to give an account of how the sister, sister India won in Buffalo, and he was linking what? it to what happened with AOC, what happened with Brother Jamal, and others. And they're arguing that the low turnout in these off season elections actually benefit progressive candidates. And then the the subsequent recommendation is that they needed to align these off season elections with you know, more general elections, right? So we can't have a mayoral election in, in June in some ways. Now, mind you, the irony is that we know that incumbents have benefited historically from these off-season elections. That's why they invested them. That's
3: exactly in them. right.
4: And the moment progressives begin to organize around these, they want to switch the game. Now, why do I bring that up? That's just one example of a whole host of folks who are the elites and in control of, of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party who want the system to remain as it is. And so Cinema and Manchin can be out because they're not going to take a hit. But you've got some other folks who are in that Senate who are on the Democratic side of the aisle who don't want the For the People Act either. They don't want to get Citizens United. They don't, they don't want the other components. And so part of what we have to do is tell a thicker story about the nature of the problem we face. That's it. And, you know, sometimes it becomes difficult because of how crazy and heinous the other side is that we don't understand how the elements within the Democratic Party have produced this world that we and I'll put it really quickly this way. If the age of Reagan is collapsing, then Sister Nina, the Democratic Party that was created in response to that age has to collapse, too. But folks don't want to don't want yeah, that to happen.
3: The yin and the yang, it, yeah, it has to. exactly. Oh my god! I, I, listen, wh- people are listening to us, so they can't see me. But you saw my reaction <laughs> when you. Saw, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did this brother on TV connect the winning of progressives <laughs> to low voter turnout?
4: He showed sure And
3: and this is why progressives are winning. They not winning because they got a different vision. They not winning because they are speaking to the suffering of people. They are benefiting from a low. I'm. We can't make this stuff up. That's why I had to. I paused. So when people hear that pause, <laughs> I'm. I, I was looking at Doctor. Glaw like, what you say? So I just had. I had the voice that uh, realizing mm. that folks cannot see us. I, I, I. Lord have mercy. We cannot make this stuff up. But you're right, <laughs> Doc. And it's harder now. You know, to me, social media is an awesome opportunity to communicate with people all over the world, Mm -hmm. create your thoughts, share information. But at the same time, social media can be a very vicious place. And in some ways I do believe we've lost our capacity to critically think for ourselves and we glorify individuals and the persona of individuals instead of launching a critical critique and we are not separating ourselves from the two political parties. In other words, the two, the, the, the dominant beliefs or, uh, actions of the two political parties dominate or seep into everything that we do as a people in this nation, so much so that people don't think beyond the club or the team that they're on. So they don't yeah. call out. You're not going to call out your team, even though, you know, your team is wrong. And that's on both sides. And I just think that social media has a lot to do. It's not the only variable, but to me, it's one of the variables.
4: Well, you know, I mean, social media can be at once a couple of things. Right. It has this leveling impulse. Right. That it allows for uh, everybody to have their own micro reality television show. Right. You can just simply. True. You can provide content just by taping your life. That's all you got to do is watch TikTok and you see all of this content you see on Instagram, all of this content that people are producing in their daily and it's brilliant in some ways. And you can also use it uh, to organize people, right, uh, to, to mobilize folk, right, in interesting sorts of ways. But it also carries with it. The dangers of democracy. This is what, you know, Edmund Burke talked about, right? That democracy always brings with it the dangers of the mass. Yes. That that you're going to get this cruel and uninformed mob. And there's this sense in which social media allows for um, a certain kind of herd mentality. It's not reducible to it, but it can allow for it. You know, I get it every single time I tweet something critical. Oh, you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. You're, you're, re- you're the reason why all of this is the case, and da-da-da. It's your and fault you know, too. Yeah, it's not, I thought know, it was just his fault. No, it's your we fault. get it all the, all the time. You know, I'll never forgive you. And I'm like, <laughs> well, we, you become a real human being as as opposed to a bot, I, that will bother me. But, but there, you see all of this stuff happening, and so part of the danger of the current moment. Right. And I'll say this in a way that, that that I hope makes sense, is that seriousness has been under assault. People only want quick clickbait; They want surface That's reading. Right. They don't want to settle and think. Many of us don't, at least. And so it becomes very difficult for democracy to work when you got misinformation flooding the public domain every single day. And then you got people who want to move quickly. They don't want to sit. Right. You can, even, you know, just think about how the recount with my good friend, John Heilman works. You know, it's just videos of news, quick axios, yeah. quick. People don't want long form. They don't want to settle in. So it becomes very difficult to have these very, you know, these thoughtful interventions to say, slow your roll. This ain't just a Republican issue here. Right. that the problem with corporate corporatism in America isn't reducible to that side of the aisle. That's it. Right. And then to say to some folks, uh white supremacy isn't the possession of only loud races. You
3: better say it. Not just tiki yeah. torches, you know what I'm saying just about people walking through the street with tiki torches. It's some folks walking exactly. through exactly smoothly undercover. with Brooks Brothers you suits. talk about it and it's not relegated to one party. I mean even Dr. King and Minister Malcolm X and a lot of our great activists of the 20th century in particular warned us about this and also warned us about this moment to me, doc, it almost seems as though there is a worship of the political parties that we can't escape. And, and those of us who elevate our thinking and our critique above a party has somehow betrayed the party. And meanwhile, Folks in high positions that are talking about betrayal of a party don't understand that this whole system has betrayed people,
4: real flesh and blood. Well, see, this is why we need political poets, you see. And what do I mean by that? So one of the interesting things about our current moment, the insidious things about our current moment is the all out assault on the imagination. So people are locked into the familiar. Yes. The familiar political scene. Uh, Even as it's collapsing, because the age of Reagan is collapsing right in front of our very eyes and people are clinging to the old political categories because the imagination is is always under assault, you see. So, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson puts it this way. God speaks to us through our imaginations. And whenever I use that formulation with my students, I say, well, if God is speaking to you through your imagination, then what does the devil do? Mm. Trying to get you to see that the world right in front of you is all that you have. So, part of what the poet's task is, not the poet in terms of the one who's doing, son- writing sonnets or da, 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 but the poet's task is to expand our imaginations, to give us a different kind of vocabulary to understand our circumstance, to give us a different kind of language to speak to our experience. I'll give you an example. There's nothing in the condition of the slave, of the enslaved that would leave her, lead her to believe that she could be anything but a slave. Come on. But there's a moment where she could look in the eye of someone right in front of her and see the glimmer of love. Or she can hear in the yard, just for a moment, the innocence of laughter of children. And in those moments, you got, you got a breakthrough where the imagination can enter. Oh, I could do something different here because I'm loved and I love right? So what the poet has to do, the political poet has to do, and Sister Nina, you've been trying to do this for a while. um, We have to offer different languages to folk so that they can understand, or let me say it differently, not understand, describe what they already see in those moments that flip by. Yes. To get a language to describe what they mean. So in the context of slavery, the Christian go, Somebody converts to Christianity and suddenly they read Acts and say, oh, God is no respecter of persons. Hmm. Fascinating. And then, boom, there's an opening to imagine beyond the opacity of one's condition. So just to, to, I'm talking too much, but no, you're not. Just to kind of summarize, the current political moment attacks the imagination such that people believe that the only thing they have, the only options they have are right in front of them. Our task, and particularly the pop political poet's task is to offer a different, to offer different language so they can imagine different choices.
3: Yeah. yeah. So you gotta be a poet in this moment. Gotta be a poet in this moment. I mean, I'm just thinking about president Nelson Mandela, one of my favorite quotes. It always seems impossible until it is done. And that's, you know, I'm just summing up what you just said. That's that until it is done. And so that summons for you, that you got to be able to see beyond what is in front of you. What you just said always seems impossible until it is done.
1: All right. So there we were cruising through the new open air zoo. When I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue with its powerful VC turbo engine. Wow, well, we had time to see all the animals.
2: And outrun a few. Drive the Nissan Rogue.
5: Right here, right now, find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next-day installation, and all backed by the Right Price Guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
1: Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot
3: So, Doc, you know, one of my favorite books by you, the uh, Demo- <laughs> Democracy in Black, mm. to me, just listening to you right now is this book. So Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul. Yeah. I mean, what what inspired you to write that particular I book? I
4: got in a lot of trouble for that book.
3: Yeah, that's Lord, good. You mercy. was making good trouble like Congressman uh, John yeah, Lewis. Some people,
4: didn't think, some people didn't think it was good, but I got in a lot of trouble for that book. I called President Obama yes. at the time and a confidence man in that book. And, in in, you know, linked him to Melville's confidence man sell, selling the snake oil of hope and change.
3: Yeah.
4: Right. In some ways, what led me to write the book is, you know, that the Great Recession of 2008 had devastated our communities. And I didn't think people were screaming loud enough. I think people were too excited about getting invitations to the White House and protecting President Obama's left flank, you know, his rear flank and, and do it. And so folk weren't screaming at the top of their lungs about what was happening in our communities. And so what I wanted to say is that I wanted to put forward this claim. And in the backdrop was Baldwin, you know, bald because to read Democracy in Black, you, I think you, you read that in tandem with Begin Again, because in the back is I'm thinking of Jimmy. Yes. And so I said, look, at the heart of this thing is the value gap. And this value gap is this belief that white people matter more than others. And that belief shapes our social, political, and economic realities. And it distri- it, it, and it guides and directs the distribution of advantage and disadvantage. And it builds a society where there's a generalized sense of disregard for those who are not white. And so I said, and then I wanted to argue, you know, saying that white supremacy is this.
3: Yes.
4: It's the valuation of human beings and then the organizing of societies in, late, in light of that valuation and devaluation. And it's given life not by the loud races. Those are easy folk. That's that's all my children. You want you you know, that's that's Marvel television. You want your you want to be able to identify your enemies and identify your heroes and heroines. No, at the heart of the value gap are these racial habits that allow us to reproduce this valuation. So I wanted to tell that story over time, because at the heart of the value gap is the lie. And the lie is this belief that America is this shining city on the hill that it is this example of democracy achieved baldwin put it this way in a book in an essay he wrote entitled the white problem he said I and mean, i'm paraphrasing him here he said uh the people who founded this country had a problem right they called them they were christians and they they said that they were coming over here to do da da da, da but they had these chattel and they had to figure out what they were going how they were going to reconcile themselves to this chattel so they said that these people were not human beings. Yes. Because if they were not human beings, Jimmy said, then no crime would have been committed. And then here's the line. That lie is the basis of our present trouble. And that lies at the heart of the value. Yeah. yes, That's is. democracy in black. That's beginning again.
3: And that stern, painful truth, because you were speaking a painful truth. I mean, my grandmother used to say, "Sometimes black people, we we think that white folks' water is colder than ours."
4: Mm. You know, the grand, grandma grandma rise
3: it. <laughs> you know, that's that's what you're saying that the the whole and and so that, so then we gotta talk about critical race theory and how these Republicans sure, sure. have lost their ever loving minds, and it's a distraction as far as I'm concerned
4: mm-hmm. because
3: you want to debate critical race theory, which they don't understand, mm-hmm. but They're putting a premise out there again, divide and conquer, divide poor whites and poor blacks and poor Hispanics and poor Asians and poor people. Lace everybody in between to make it seem as though critical race theory is somehow trying to teach. I heard one one politician was giving a floor speech. He said something like and I'm paraphrasing him trying to guilt white children, you know, white children into feeling bad because they're white. No, that is not what critical race theory is. And I think in many ways, your book, Dr. Glaw, Democracy and Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, speaks to this moment about critical race theory indirectly. And I don't know if you were thinking about the term critical race theory when you wrote it, but Mm -hmm. your book is very timely for this moment that we're in, in this whole debate, this red herring, so they don't have to do do they jobs on Capitol Hill, because anytime you got time to read Dr. Seuss mm-hmm. and then debate critical race theory that you know nothing about, you got too much time on your hands and you're not really doing the real work of feeding folks, shoring up small businesses, dealing with the COVID pandemic, dealing with the climate chaos. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that they could be doing instead of uh, worrying about and demonizing critical race theory. But your book reminds me very much of this this debate right now.
4: They're doing what they want to do, though. I want to be clear. While we're talking and debating around critical race theory, they're trying to disenfranchise us. Yes. So, look, I agree completely with you. It's a distraction. And there's no reason to have an argument with any of these people about the meaning of critical race theory, because even if I were to offer a a, a robust description of its origins and its meanings, that doesn't matter. They don't care if they're wrong in how they're describing critical race theory. It's a catch-all phrase for their attempt to reassert this history that that allows them to be innocent, you see? So part of what we get caught up in, no, you're wrong, and we want to argue about the particulars. No, the, the question is not whether or not they got critical, th- critical race theory right. The question is, why are you invoking it? What are you doing? And what they're doing is getting us to focus on that red herring yes. as opposed to what they're doing, and that is disenfranchising us. 48 states. Ohio is one of them. Close to 400 pieces of legislation. We're arguing around critical race theory while they're passing legislation that's going to make it harder for us to vote.
3: They playing chess and we playing checkers.
4: And we're not playing it well. We're not playing checkers well. Part of what I think we have to, what I was trying to get at in democracy and black was you know, race this value gap continues to organize our lives. And unless we tell the truth about it, unless we expose its operations, unless we uproot the habits that give it life, we're going to continue on this racial hamster wheel. And so here we are in a moment. George Floyd gets lynched, basically, in front of our eyes. Derek Chauvin gets arrested, handcuffed, gets 22 and a half years. We know some people selling weed who got more time than that.
3: Yeah.
4: Right. Right. Some of my close partners selling weed got 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 more time than that. And, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not an abolitionist. And so I don't want to. You know, just kind of say I'm not a carceral person either. Right. So the answer to injustice is not always locking people up, but we I'm just using it as an example sure. of of the bias inherent in the system. Right. So. So what we do know is that we had an opportun we had an opportunity to fundamentally transform this country. We were in the streets. We were tearing down Civil War memorials. It looked like we were on the precipice of change, right? And what do we see? Critical race theory, voting rights, Tim Scott coming out saying, America's not racist. Remember how we began this story, Kamala Harris coming behind him saying, America is not racist. In real time, at the moment in which we're about to change, we, we think we're on the precipice of change, We see the reassertion of the value gap. I'll put it this way when I'm talking around the country. At every moment when a new America is about to be born, the umbilical cord of white supremacy is wrapped around the baby's neck, choking the life out of it. And we're seeing it in real time.
3: Mm. That's deep. That's a deep visual right there. So what do we do? I mean, you've laid out the conundrum. You certainly laid out the history repeats itself. You know, several lessons mm-hmm. that we can take from this lecture that Dr. Eddie Glaude has given us
4: uh, I shouldn't be talking uh, about we're supposed to be dialoguing, no, we, and I'm lecturing
3: No, it's fine, <laughs> I, I'm I'm with it I'm, I, and I think everybody that is on this journey with us today they're with it too, you're imparting knowledge so I don't want you to even think about it as, as a traditional lecture so where do we go from here?
4: We have to fight at the local level, we have to reimagine America, we have to what I've called in, in my latest work, uh, we need a new, a third founding. That's why you got to win. Yeah. Right. And then when, if you win, we're going to hold you accountable too. Hey, I'm for it. Right. So, you know, the idea is that, you know, we have to fundamentally, fundamentally reimagine this place because it's broke. I didn't say broken, I said it's broke. Yeah. I'm a country boy from Mississippi. America is broke. And there's a generation of folk who know it, yeah, who are clear about it. They know the place isn't working. So part of what we have to do, the answer to your question, as, as best as I can reach for what, for an answer, is that we have to fight with all of our hearts and energy, with all the courage for a more just America.
3: Yes.
4: we got to risk everything now. Because I don't know if we fail in this moment, Sister Nina, you tell me what you think. If you fail If we fail in this moment, I don't know if this place can bounce back. I'm just not confident that if we don't finally address this mess, it's going to overwhelm the whole thing.
3: yeah, in many ways, I agree with that, doc. I mean, it's certainly what keeps me awake at night, sure it keeps you awake at night and many people about uh, the fissagers, the refusal to face. But uh, Mr. Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, right. but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And that exactly. really, again, is the foundational point of the conversation that we are having today. There is unwillingness, either we're unwilling or unable mm-hmm. to face the sins, the F-ups, you know, pick pick your, your word, of this nation in a deep enough way to begin, then to say, just because that was the way it was,
5: mm-hmm.
3: or just because that is the way it is today, doesn't mean that's the way it has to be tomorrow. And that goes into your reimagining. I mean, nobody can say re- reimagining is as wonderfully as you. I mean, every time you you say it, I think I'm about to reimagine. <laughs> I can feel the reimagine, but it, it really is about a reimagining. You're absolutely right. So I'm with you. And and I mean, like climate chaos is one great example of what you are laying down right now, which is we don't have a whole lot of time. So it's one thing to believe the science. So we got one group of folks, of political players who don't believe the science. We got another group of political players who believe the science, but won't do a damn thing about it. I mean, where does that lead to people? That's the kind of yeah. stuff that bothers me. And And if I were to get out there and say that like that, Oh, my God. You know, she's putting putting Democrats on the same plane as Republicans. I mean, you know what they do because they come after both. But but I mean, where's the lie? One party doesn't believe the science. One party believes the science. Yeah. We sitting up here playing games. We're implementing the policy fixes so that what right. is today will not be tomorrow, knowing that our very existence of human species and everything that depends on human beings to do the right thing in the ecosystem itself is in peril.
4: If we don't fix this. Right. Because we're caught between two things, at least greed. Yes. And racism. That's it. I mean, it's a it's a cocktail that will knock you on your behind. It will. So There are folks who don't care whether that's you black, green, purple or yellow. All they care about is the bottom line and they're short term thinkers don't care about the planet all the only thing they care about is that you know their bank accounts their stock market portfolios and that's not reducible to an elephant or a donkey no it's not that's across the board so when you have greed intersecting with racism right it's a deadly cocktail that that has poisoned the body politic and so for me you know for me we have to continue to keep track of both of those at the same time And if you keep track of both of those at the same time, then they're going to be a whole bunch of folk who have to catch a cup, you know, a two piece or a three piece or something, you know, who have to catch the critique. And and I mean, just honestly. And see, this is the key, right? Because because it seems to me that if I'm right, that the age of Reagan has proven itself bankrupt. And what do I mean by that? What are the pillars of the age of Reagan? That big government is by definition bad. COVID has proven that wrong. That's right taxation, tax policy. We need to give tax relief uh to, to the wealthy and trickle those down. who are and it will trigger that that's been proven to be nonsense. The carceral reality of Reaganism has generated the incarceration of millions of Americans. That isn't even sustainable as a public policy position, right? That has proven itself bankrupt. The toying with with white resentment has overrun the party, right? So the fact that he was in Neshoba County Cultivating Wallace Democrats, I didn't say Republicans, I said George Wallace yes, Democrats, shit. right? That has overrun the Democratic, it's metastasized and overrun the Republican part. almost, outside of, outside of the, the, what we might say, his, uh, his foreign policy, which I have issues with, every other element, pillar of Reaganism has proven itself to be bankrupt. But you got folk who've made so much money because of that. Who are not willing to change and so it seems to me that you can't play footsies with these people people keep telling me that you know you're just in the ivory tower you don't understand how politics work but you cannot play footsies with these people because they are committed to the world that is killing the planet That's it. and is denying the future for a generation of of, of, of our, for our babies these are the people I don't believe Republicans are good faith actors. So why are we dancing with them? That's right. And the we here. Yeah. And I don't think Joe Manchin is a good faith actor. That's
3: right. But see, we want to trade the appearance, the illusion, inebriated with the illusion, the whole let's be bipartisan. Bipartisanly what? Allowing people to languish in poverty? Mm Mm-hmm. In a bipartisan way, what? We got to wait for a bipartisan way to protect voting rights when we know? Mm-hmm. I mean, because the Republicans of today, especially on the federal level, have been very crystal clear about their mission. When Hello, somebody. Hello, somebody. When, when, when mm-hmm. leader Mitch McConnell, even with you know President Obama being elected, all the history that was made, he made it very clear from day one. I don't give a damn about your history. My number one goal is make him a one-term president. I mean, you can't get no clearer than that. I don't agree with the man, but he told his truth mm-hmm. and they were on the pursuit to do that the entire time. And it didn't matter how diplomatic President Obama was. It didn't matter. They didn't care. Mm-hmm. And guess what? They didn't even let, you know, the the, the Supreme Court justice pick. Oh, no, that's not going to happen. We can't do that so close to the election. Mm-hmm. Then turn right around. Soon mm-hmm. as it came on they for, for President Trump. Didn't care that they said that I mean it turned right there So these are those same Republicans And for any Democrat To think in whole I mean you might be able to sway a Republican Here or there on an issue or two Don't get me wrong But on the whole That Republicans have changed their nature Just because we got somebody else In the White House I don't know what to call it Insanity? I I, I just don't get it
4: Naivete I I mean
3: (laughs) and even mr McConnell, even now in the minority is still talking that big talk
4: still walking around like they control things just like they, they can, control it mean, cuz
3: see they they're clear baffled. about their agenda
4: mm-hmm.
3: and they go ham with their agenda mm-hmm. but democrats still playing games they we asked the american people to give us the help us keep the house check help us get the senate by way of georgia check help us get the presidency check and still... Even right to this minute, we're not doing much for the people who need it most in this country. So, Doc, I won't say it's an unfair question, but I mean, it boggles my mind. And so if we can't get all of the change that we need and what you have identified in your various writings, your essays, your your critique on TV, your courage to be able to speak a type of truth that many people won't speak for fear of. Where absolutely do we go? From here, given the current condition, give, given the current state of things, is there still hope? And I, I happen to believe hope is an action word.
4: But mm-hmm. is there? Yeah, you know, Jimmy Baldwin says. I call him Jimmy because you know he's been walking with. Oh, me. I
3: know, I know. I
4: keep his, I keep his uh, saint candle right next <laughs> to my. And my it's joint. right there on your bookshelf, all over the yeah, place. Yeah, you know. So, so, but he says hope is invented every day.
3: Whoop. Hello. That's a fresh word. Hello. That's a fresh word. Right? Yes.
4: And if hope is invented every day, that means you got to battle with despair every day. Yeah. Right. So so we're not naive. It's a blue soaked hope. So what do we need to do? We got to keep fighting. Right. We got to keep fighting at the local level, at the county level, at the state level and at the the national level. Um, And we have to we have to produce people. who are going to and I'm I'm not just reducing it to politics, but we're going to talk about it for a moment. We have to produce people who are going to run for office, who are going to come in and fight for the vision of America that we that we want. And we got to hold these people accountable who are really clinging to the status quo. So the only way we're going to even get any traction is that we're going to have to fight like the world depends on it.
3: Like our lives depend on
4: it. Exactly. You're going to have to fight. Like, you know, somebody done cussed your mom. I know that's right. You had, I was about to say like big mama. Like Yeah, like, you're going to have to get, we're going to have to get down with, the, you know, yes. and, and part of that involves, right, being very clear about where you stand. I'm very clear that it's not, to me, it's not about Republicans or Democrats. It's about everyday, ordinary people. That's right. And if a, if someone who calls themselves a Republican evidences a concern for everyday, ordinary people, and bringing forward policy uh, positions that will impact the lives of everyday ordinary people, okay, it's time to talk. Can work. We can work, but I'm not interested because in, I think we're post-party. At least we got to be. Yeah. I understand what it means to run for, you know, given a two-party system. But, you know, as Dr. West used to tell me, we got to wear these things like a loose garment. Yes, You know, and, and really, really fight for the world. So, so the only thing... The only answer to your question, right? because there's no there's I can't give you any guarantees is that we got to fight like our lives depend on for the world that we 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 want. That's gonna mean that when they call us all of the names, when they come after us, right? when the when the powers that be unleash all of this stuff at us, right? you got to steal your spine and continue to fight. That's what we have to do, because the stakes are that high. Baldwin knew when he stood up for those those young people who were crying black power? Yeah.
3: Because
4: he saw them. He saw Stokely Carmichael in Alabama, in Mississippi. He knew them when they were young students at Howard. He saw them when they were in the bowels of the South in Selma. He knew that they were committed to nonviolent discipline. Stokely Carmichael said, Kwame Ture said, he never broke nonviolent discipline but once. And that's when a police officer attacked Dr. King. So when he said that when those young babies Started screaming black power. He knew why they did it, because the country had betrayed him. The country produced that. And he wasn't going to he wasn't going to d- betray them. And what what happened? He never won an award, never got the National Book Award, never got the never got the Pulitzer, never got the Nobel because he knew what the costs were. We've got to fight. We have to fight. Fight for the world That means we're going to Fight for living wage We're going to fight For student loan For student loan relief We're going to fight For serious criminal justice reform You got people Who claiming to be Claiming to be down With, with what we're trying to do And they're going to give up Qualified immunity What the hell I know I mean we can just go Down the line right? We're gonna We're going to We got to fight For the world That we want That's right I mean I, I know I'm preaching to the but choir that's But that's it Go yeah.
3: ahead Sometimes the choir Need to be preached too Amen <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on past the plate. <laughs> or, as the preacher will say at the end of service, will you come? Will
4: you come? Will you come? Will you
3: come will you join come? us on this righteous justice journey and fight for an America and a world that can be and that is possible if we only believe a reimagining? Oh my God, to have Dr. Eddie S. Glaude Jr. The James S. McDonald, Distinguished University Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at the Princeton University It is always Always, I mean he's taking us to church and taking us to school all at the same time Doc, it was so great to have you with us today on Hello Somebody
4: It was my pleasure and you know, we cannot wait to see you get sworn in uh-huh. It's going to be so dope, I can't wait
3: is so so good so good hello somebody is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your favorite shows
0: in the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs there's no room to fake it every pass shot and dribble